This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series on Jesus' parables. The parables are short stories that tell us about the kingdom of God. They're simple, they're memorable, and they're challenging. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's likely you'll be familiar with the most famous, the parable of the lost sheep, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Last Sunday, Judith spoke about the pearl of great price. But recently, when I've mentioned I'd be preaching on the parable of the unjust steward, I've had some blank looks, furrowed brows, and scrunched up faces. Most people couldn't quite place it. It's not one that gets into children's Bibles, and it doesn't immediately pop into your head. Those people I spoke to who did recognize the parable looked at me with pity. Most commentators think it's the hardest of Jesus' parables to get to grips with. That means not everyone agrees, and people looked at me as if I'd drawn the short straw of the sermon series, or rather that I'd chosen to draw the short straw of the sermon series. So if the parable of the unjust steward doesn't immediately come to mind, you're in good company. But there's something fresh about a story we haven't heard a hundred times. And there's something satisfying about getting a grip on the meaning of a parable whose interpretation isn't obvious. For Jesus' first hearers, all the parables were new. But after 2,000 years of telling, some of the parables are so familiar we don't really hear them anymore. So if you've got a Bible... Turn with me to Luke 16, and I'm reading from verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. 
So if you've not been trustworthy with, in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you, you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Firstly, let me pray. Lord, as we come to this parable, would you help us to hear it afresh? Lord, would we know what you're saying to us through it? And by the power of your word, I pray that we would go away transformed. Amen. Firstly, just a quick warning. Um, The parable of the unjust steward has lots of names. I'm going to try to be consistent, but if I mention the shrewd or the dishonest steward or the unrighteous manager, please forgive me. As it happens, there are more names than these, and it might give you an indication that this is not an ordinary parable. One commentator writes, the present interpreter will be pardoned if he stumbles about in explaining it. I hope not to stumble about in explaining it. And I think this parable is surprising for three reasons. Firstly, the characters are hard to recognise. There's the master and the steward. And we're used to parables where God or Jesus is one character and Jesus' disciples are the other character. Turn back one chapter to Luke 15 and you will get exactly this. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. They're all stories with two main characters. The shepherd and the sheep, the woman and the lost coin, and the broken-hearted father and his lost son. But when we come to the dishonest manager, we've got a problem. There are two main characters, the master and the steward, but who are they? The master, we don't know much about, but he doesn't seem particularly godly. There's nothing to indicate who he represents. And it's hard to, for us to identify strongly with the steward, unless you're feeling particularly fraudulent. <laughs> Secondly, the parable seems to only contain bad behaviour. Behaviour that seems clearly wrong. There's no good example in this parable, it seems. And this might be okay, apart from the third strange thing about the parable. Jesus commends the dishonest manager. He commends the unjust steward, and he says we should model our behaviour on that steward. He says that at least in some ways, we should behave like this man who is so evidently and deliberately defrauded his master. A scenario like this may not be too far from a workplace near you. Imagine Big Boss Al, Big Boss Alan of a large conglomerate. His name's Alan, but we'll call him Mr. Sugar. (laughs) Sorry, we'll call him Lord Sugar. He's a big cheese in the business community. He owns lots of property. He's got multiple large businesses. He hires managers to run those businesses, his CEOs, his 
stewards. He is Alan Sugar, after all. He's got lots to do and important apprentice TV to make. He leaves a manager in charge of his businesses. And one day, reports come in that one of the businesses is not going well. The company he hears is going down, but when he looks at the accounts, the CEO's salary is going up. The reports are clear. He's got a bad manager in charge. Lord Sugar brings the CEO into his boardroom. The long table stretches between them, and Lord Sugar is sitting on an intimidatingly high chair, as he does. The CEO looks around, and he notices for him there's no chair at all. But before he can get a word out to defend himself, Lord Sugar delivers his infamous words. You're fired. Luckily for the CEO, the manager is not an apprentice, and he's given his notice a few weeks. He doesn't have to get straight into a black cab, but he has time to hand in the accounts to Lord Sugar. The situation is dire for the CEO. He needs a new job. He's got an expensive lifestyle to pay for. But the company's accounts are public, and his running of the company into the ground people know about. No one's about to hire him. He's got an idea. He has contacts in other companies. They owe him money. They owe the business money. And money can be persuasive. He invites them round to the office. And when they arrive, he slashes their debts. One company's debts reduced by half, another by a fifth. He effectively grants them hundreds of thousands of pounds from the company coffers. And the, the CEO knows the contacts will owe him one. He hopes that once his notice is up, he'll be able to walk into one of their companies with a job. And two weeks later, sure enough, on his final day in his old job, he's already got a new job lined up. He's clearing out his desk when Sir Alan comes by to bid him farewell. He tenses. No doubt Alan Sugar's uh, heard about the debts he produced. But Alan Sugar doesn't shout at him. In fact, he can't help but admit that the CEO was clever in what he did. The new job, the way he found his new job was good business sense. Maybe a long time ago, Lord Alan Sugar would even have done the same. We're going to come back to the parable, maybe without Alan Sugar, in a minute. But firstly, I want to tell you a story about a friend from university. It's a real story um, that I'm going to call my friend Tom for this ser sermon. But Tom and I both studied at the same university. We went to lectures together, and we revised together. He went to my college. And we lost contact until about a month ago when I was back at university. I was reading a book in the Waterstones Cafe, and he sat down next to me. We didn't notice each other at first. But after a few minutes of reading, we both happened to look up at the same time and noticed that we were sitting next to each other. And he was working away on his laptop, so I asked him what he was working on. I didn't expect him to say it was a poster for Extinction Rebellion. 
you've heard of Extinction Rebellion, you know they campaign peacefully on climate change. But they try to be as disruptive as possible. They're the ones who put the pink boat in London and brought traffic to a standstill. They get themselves arrested. They block public transport. They do anything they can and everything they can to force policy change on greenhouse emissions. I didn't expect Tom to be working on that poster. And as it turns out, he's one of the media guys for Extinction Rebellion. And as I was asking him about Extinction Rebellion, he said something that surprised me. He said, Zach, society is going to end in 10 years. I was shocked. He said, global warming will have an effect on our food supply. It will have an effect on our water supply. There's going to be droughts and there's going to be hunger. That's why I'm out campaigning, he said. Now, I think climate change is a serious issue. But personally, I'm less convinced about Tom's timescales. But that's not what shocked me about what he said. His urgency and his commitment shocked me. In our comfortable lives, things just seem to keep ticking. We wake up, we have breakfast, we brush our teeth, we get stuck in traffic on the way to work, we come home, we cook food, we turn on the TV, maybe we hear the latest on Brexit and we go to sleep. Occasionally we go on holiday, but we do know that we will grow up, go to school, get a job, grow old and retire. But Tom's understanding was different. His understanding was that the world was changing. And both Tom in the coffee shop and the steward in the Powerball have something in common. They're behaving as you would expect them to behave, given the future life they're awaiting. The steward understands his own changing future. He will leave his master's service and he will be on his own. He uses what's at hand to prepare as best he can. He takes his master's resources and he uses them to secure his future. Tom is expecting catastrophic global climate change. He expects rising sea levels and mass migration, and he's doing everything he can right now to get people ready for the frightening future scenario. Both Tom and the steward are getting ready. They're preparing for a future that has not yet come but a future that they're completely convinced is heading down the tracks towards them. In fact, you could argue that how we prepare tells us a lot about the future we expect. We are always preparing for the future in small and large ways. We put money in savings accounts or pension schemes. We invest in the property ladder. Students take out loans to go to university preparing for a future career. Sick formers prepare for exams. Holidays, certain makers save up and browse websites getting ready for their holidays, and governments prepare for Brexit. The list goes on, but this is what made Tom's behavior so striking. Tom has an alternative vision of the future, and he was preparing differently because of it. Now, Jesus could simply have taught that our material goods are worthless that the resources God has given us to steward today in this life will simply be gone when we die. You can't take them with you after all. 
But this is not what Jesus teaches in the parable of the unjust steward. Rather, he says we have a responsibility to steward our resources for God's promised future. Verse 8 reads, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Did you notice that? The people of this world are more shrewd than the people of light. He's making a comparison, and this is the crux. He's saying we should be learning from the people of this world. Well, here are three principles that we can learn from the unjust steward. Number one, his position. The steward understands his position. He's been fired, and he's working out his notice. He's in the overlap between his current job and his next job. He no longer entirely works for his master, but nor has his future life started yet. In just a few weeks' time, he's not going to be in charge of his master's wealth and of his temporary position. In that respect, he is fully aware. This applies to Jesus' disciples as well. We live in this world, but we are citizens, we're told, of the next. We're awaiting the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom that we know is coming, but is not yet fully here. There will be a day that the kingdom arise in its fullness, but for now we only have a foretaste of those things. We are in the transition between the 21st century and the coming kingdom. And in this position, we have access to this world's resources for the time being. Like the steward who's working out his notice, we have this world's goods, and we're working out our notice. Secondly, preparation. The steward is not just aware that his job is ending, he's planning for his life beyond it. In verse 3, he says, the the manager says to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He is lazy and unwilling to do manual labor. He's proud and unwilling to beg, but he is planning for his future job. We must think ahead and make ready. The steward comes up with a plan. It's dishonest, but it is a plan. Tom is the same. He's making posters. He's going on protests. Maybe he's getting arrested. He's talking to his friends like me about climate change. He may be posting on Facebook. In other words, he's getting ready. And we too should be getting ready, but for the kingdom of God. We believe that this age is ending, and we must prepare for the next. Thirdly, the steward is practical. He has access to the company accounts for only a few short weeks. And he buys people's loyalty while he still has the cash. He knows he won't be, he knows he's got to be quick because he doesn't have long. In fact, he takes different decisions with the money precisely because he's losing his job. And we likewise need to be practical with what we have now. It's easy to say our money is only worldly wealth, 
it's possible to be so focused on the idea of a heavenly future that we neglect the practical implications for today. Verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth. Use it knowing it will be gone. I don't think Jesus is saying we should commit fraud in order to give to the church. I don't think he's saying we should bribe our friends to come along on a Sunday. But he's saying we have access to resources now and we should use them just because when we die, we can't take our wealth with us, that doesn't mean to say it has no value at all. Rather than say worldly wealth is worthless, Jesus says it has real value precisely because it can be used to prepare for the future. The debts the steward has access to have a great deal of value to the steward, even though he's losing his job because they allow him to get a new job. These three things are what make the steward shrewd. He's shrewd because he knows the position he's in. He's shrewd because he prepares. And he's shrewd because he's practical. He does something with what he has today. In each of these, we have a model for disciples. But there are two things that the shrewd gets wrong, two differences. Firstly, as children of God, we are to have different standards. The master commends the dishonest steward for his shrewdness, not the shrewd steward for his dishonesty. Lord Sugar isn't happy that the CEO has used his money to find a new job, but he can't help admit it was clever. Although we should be preparing shrewdly for the future, just as the world prepares shrewdly, we should not prepare in the same dishonest manner. Verse 10 reads, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The idea is this. We're not owners of our own resources. We are stewards, just as the steward is looking after his master's resources. We have control over them, but they're not ours. And if the steward in the parable was dishonest and wasteful in how he used his master's wealth, we are to be honest and trustworthy in what God has given us to steward today. Imagine you're borrowing a good friend's expensive car. It's a very expensive car. How do you go about driving it? Do you race it down muddy country tracks, which are bumpy, breaking the suspension, covering it in mud? Or do you do you keep it on a driveway which is very public, in which it might get stolen, scratched, or hit? No, you drive it carefully. You keep it in a garage. You protect it from the elements. And you make sure you protect it from thieves. We're to look after what God has given us to steward. And here's the other difference. The steward's motivation is different than ours. He is out for his own gain. He's lost his job, and he wants a new one. He needs income. He's self-centered in that respect, and he's self-interested. You may say, well, my friend Tom is more altruistic. 
he's out there campaigning for climate change because he thinks it matters a great deal for the entire planet. <coughs> he's not out for himself when he campaigns. In fact, he's making considerable sacrifices. He's campaigning with passion and zeal, using his time. He's making posters. He's going on rallies. He might even get himself arrested for the cause. Well, this is a challenge for Christians. If the steward is acting delib deliberately to secure his personal future, how much more should we be setting our faces to invest for the kingdom of God? I found Tom's seriousness about making a better world a real challenge. If I believe the kingdom of God is the true hope for this world, then how much more zeal should I be preparing practically for the kingdom? This is the warning that Jesus gives in his parable. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Let me leave you with a story about my granddad. My granddad's 83, and five years ago, my grandma died. And as he was getting older, my granddad found himself living in a large four-bedroom house, and it was just too big for him. He is fiercely intentional, so he decided to downsize while he still had the energy. He would move to a two-bedroom bungalow. He kept an eye out for an opportunity that would be close to my parents and close to town. And as soon as one came up for sale, he put in the offer and sold his previous house. And in the move, he needed to pack all his possessions into boxes. Going through each item, he categorized them. Some items were thrown away. They simply go in the bin. They are waste of space and you maybe don't even realize you have the clutter. Some items he kept. My granddad is a board games player. In fact, he's an avid board games player. For as lo long as I can remember, I would go around to his house to play Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride. In his new house, as it turns out, he one of the first things he did was build a huge cupboard to store the few hundred games he's been collecting over the decades. But the items he wanted to keep, he covered in bubble wrap. He put them into boxes, he marked them fragile, and he made sure they were the right way up. He was looking after them. And there was a third category of items that my granddad had it take, you don't have to be a mathematician to realize that if you move from a four-bedroom house to a two-bedroom bungalow, you'll have two spare beds and other plenty, plentiful things left over. He could throw them away or put them into long-term storage, but this is what he did. He put them on the church notice board. He couldn't afford to pay... Uh, couples who couldn't afford to pay for them accepted them, and with gratitude, he gave them. And in return, they were happy to get, take, bring him round for a meal to say thank you for his generous gift. Some things just clog up our lives. They don't add any value, and we should just spiritually declutter from them. Some things we need in our daily lives to live. 
but other things we can use to prepare for the future. Let me just conclude. The parable of the unjust steward is difficult. If you have time this week, go away and reread it. And if, then, and as you read, think about what Jesus is calling up, us to face up to. That we are in a position of this world which is passing away, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling us to prepare with what we have now for what is to come. And in our preparation, he wants us to be practical, to use what we have today in the knowledge that investing it for God's kingdom is the best possible investment we can make. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us to steward today. Would you help us not to hold on to this world's possessions? as if they're going to last forever. Would you, God, who gives generously to us, help us to give generously of our time and our resources. And Lord, would we seek first your kingdom above all else. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.